Hi everyone, I'm Gary Knoll. Always a pleasure to be able to share an empowering hour with you, and that we have. We begin with the latest on health and healing. This comes from the University of Cordoba in Spain. And it's about a tiny little mineral, selenium. And what it does is it reduces the mixtures of environmental pollutants' harmful effects on health. A study in mice conducted at the university proves that exposure to contaminating mixtures of metals and drug residue increase damage to our health and evaluates the positive effects of a diet enriched with selenium to reduce the harm. So what they're just saying in lay language is every day we're all exposed to various air pollutants and water pollutants and food and soil pollutants and then the kind of industrial pollutants that we may work in an environment that exposes us. And some of these are heavy metals, uh, forever chemicals that just don't come in and out of our body easily. And they're saying that a simple mineral, about 200 micrograms, can help alleviate this. So, one more way to help ourselves, even the residues of pharmaceuticals, can be very deadly to our body. And even the water we drink, because now they're finding things like chemotherapy yeah, and uh, statins, all kinds of drugs that people take in the water, arsenic, cadmium, mercury, and uh, we don't need that. All right? So make sure that you have onions. They're a good source of selenium, uh, garlic, or just take a multiple vitamin with 200 micrograms of selenium a day that helps detoxify the body. Fennel is good for painful periods. And I would add vitamin B6 at about 100, 150 milligrams as you're getting your period if you have a painful period. And that helps. And But fennel, we didn't know about. And this is the same fennel that you can put into salads. Tastes a little bit like licorice. And it's been clinically proven uh, as an alternative to drugs for a period of pain. And this was at the Kerman University of Medical Sciences. So, by the way, what is called dysmenorrhea, or painful periods, affect about 25% of all women, with estimates for adolescents reaching about 90%. So given the prevalence of this disability condition, because it, it, it can really hurt people, it can keep them from working for a day or two, they generally rely upon non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And that's not good, because that's very serious side effects, including death. So my suggestion is try fennel and vitamin B6, because they've both been shown to work, and they're non-toxic, and that's good. Another study comes from the University of British Columbia, and it shows a direct link between high insulin levels to pancreatic cancer. Yes, a new study from researchers at the university's Faculty of Medicine reveals direct link between high insulin levels among patients, and who are these patients? Mainly people overweight or obese and who have type 2 diabetes. The study published in Cell Metabolism provides the first detailed explanation of why people with obesity and type 2 diabetes are at a greater risk a pancreatic cancer. And the research demonstrates that excessive insulin levels 
overstimulate pancreatic, what are called achenar cells, which produce digestive juices. And this overstimulation leads to inflammation that converts these cells into precancerous cells. So, losing weight or keeping in a healthy, normal weight, and that can be done, and that can help overcome diabetes, exercising every day, power walking, 10,000 steps a day, eating a plant-based diet with rich fibers, and taking chromium picanolate, all of those help prevent diabetes. But also, it helps prevent, now we know, pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, the most prevalent pancreatic cancer, and the one that is highly aggressive with a five-year survival rate of less than 10%. So, just something else that can help you. And from Columbia University's School of Public Health, a simple study about over 80% of breast cancer patients in the United States use complementary therapies, good for you, following a breast cancer diagnosis. But there's been little science-based guidance to inform clinicians and patients about their safety and efficacy. In newly published guidelines from the Society for Integrative Oncology, researchers at Columbia University's Melman School of Public Health, with colleagues from ND Anderson and the University of Michigan and Memorial Sloan Kettering and other institutions in the United States and Canada analyzed which integrative treatments appear to be most effective and safe for patients. They evaluated more than 80 different therapies. Meditation, yoga, and relaxation with imagery were found to have the strongest evidence supporting their use. They received an A grade and are recommended for routine use. Let me talk again about that. Meditation, yoga, and relaxation with imagery. That's very important. That's at the top of the list. And why? Why would that be important? Because we now know the evidence is overwhelming that stressors, things that distress us, you know, cause distress, where we feel always angst-ridden, that precipitates a faulty immune system which allows cancer to, to grow. So, being relaxed, being at peace of mind, being happy, help to prevent disease and help reverse it. And by the way, with all the people I counsel, and a lot of people, in fact, right now I'm counseling someone with pancreatic cancer in stage, uh, has had all the therapies twice. And the oncologist says, there's nothing more we can do. The best thing you can do while you still have cognition and energy is to put your life in order say your goodbyes, and go into hospice care. And that's what a person was doing. And then they contacted me. So I'm working with them now. They've already gained seven pounds, eight pounds, in just two weeks. And uh, they're on a vigorous protocol. But meditation and yoga and relaxation are also a very important part of that. Getting a person to focus upon life and not death. The beginning of something new instead of the end of things that they lived with. Being able to be optimistic about a future instead of feeling dread. And when people have a terminal diagnosis, they go through this enormous amount of anxiety, understandably so, about everything is going to be gone. They're going to be gone. And so there's a terror, a fear, and there's a, a sense of 
a sense of loss that's virtually indescribable. So I work with them on that level to take the negative images and make positive, to encourage them to have something to live for and uh, to laugh, to show films that, you know, comedies, and get their spirits up. And suddenly the immune system comes up with it. And of course, there are things that can build on the immune system. And I can assure you, there's, there's ways of dealing with cancer that none of these institutions would know about. Oh, uh, except uh, one of those institutions, Sloan Kettering, one of its leading oncologists and a professor there, came down to a retreat and watched some of the things that occur when people are making healthy lifestyle choices and its impact upon cancer. Came away saying, you're just talking about health and nutrition and behavior and, and look at the results. Because some of the people who visited, I'd worked with years before who had end-stage cancer and were cancer-free 30 years later, 20 years later, 17 years later. So there is another way of approaching it. But I'm glad to see that they're doing this. Uh, so that got A's. And then the B's, which is still good, uh, for re reducing stress, reducing depression, and fatigue, were also endorsed for most breast cancer patients. Acupuncture received a B for controlling chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting and can be recommended for most patients. And more than 30 interventions, including some natural products and acupuncture for other conditions, had weaker evidence. And uh, But at least now, the good news is that there is a recognition that other therapies can make a difference. They will never be offered first, unfortunately, but they should be a part of everyone's program who has cancer. And finally, from Catalan Institute for Cardiovascular Science in Spain, pomegranates reverse damage from junk food and boost heart health. Yes. With chambers and blood, uh, blood red insides, the physical appearance of pomegranate isn't the only thing that ties them to the human heart. Research indicates these in-season delights are heart-protective food that can even undo the body damage caused by junk foods. And that's what they found. So if you want to have a healthy heart, clean arteries and veins, heal the epithelium, the inner lining, they can have clots and, and clog and cause stroke. Pomegranate. If you can eat the pomegranate, then get the pomegranate unsweetened juice, and better still, the concentrate. And have that every day. It makes a difference. And it did in these studies as well. So, it's rich in polyphenols. And this was published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition and indicated that pomegranate juice can help reduce oxidative stress and plaque on arterial walls. And that's really important. In fact, it reduced plaque by up to 30% in a year's time. And that can save lives. Oh, by the way, one last thing. Excessive weight gain during pregnancy can lead to high risk of death. This is National University of Singapore and University of Pennsylvania. So just if you're pregnant, be in the hands of a qualified nutritionist, a dietitian, who can help you gain, help
help you in directing you in how much weight you're gaining with a healthy diet. If you gain too much weight, if you're eating junk foods, and a lot of people do, we're not aware of how dangerous that is. But weight gain is a common phenomenon during pregnancy, fine, but excessive gain can be a sign of adverse health issues for mothers. So according to a recent study of pregnant women with low-risk pregnancy complications in Singapore, approximately 60% of them either gain too little or too much weight during pregnancy. Exceeding the recommended weight gain was associated with a higher risk of cesarean section, C-section, deliveries and birth of larger babies, rendering this an increased alarming issue in the study. So, just control your weight in a healthy way, all right? That's the latest on health and healing, and uh, we're going to take a break and come right back. Please stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Nall. One of the questions that's been asked but not really answered for a long time, through centuries actually, is what is our capability? Are we born intrinsically uh, aggressive? Are we born to survive based upon beating other people over competing dominant qualities? Or are we born with compassion, empathy, cooperation, working together? And this has been debated back and forth. Well, there's a person who I've never heard of who has some insights on this, and I think it's extremely relevant. It's a long clip, but we're dividing it into like 10 to 12 minute segments. Now, this is something you have not heard before because he's taking the position that how we've been living, how we justify um, our manifest destiny, our conquering nature, conquering tribes, conquering other people, conquering controlling relationships, those who have the dominant power. And look at it now. Look at the police state. Look at a government that's supposed to be our servants, public servants, and telling us what we can and cannot say. Say the wrong thing, you could end up criticized or even in jail in some places like Great Britain and Ireland. And so now we live in fear of the state. This is very Orwellian. So what is our actual real nature? Is it to be like this? Because we've unfortunately taken the work of Darwin, Charles Darwin, to heart. There's a survival of the fittest. And then we'll say, well, who, who does a woman want to mate with? A man who's strong and in control and dominant or a weaker man? quiet man, a shy man, a thoughtful man, introspective man. And almost always the answer is, well, the dominant one. And look at who we vote for into office, with the exception of Harry Truman. Virtually all the men, uh, going clear back to Calvin Coolidge, have been dominant. FDR was certainly had a dominant personality. And look at people like uh, uh, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, dominant. They sound presidential. They look presidential. And look at uh, the people that we, right now in our conflicts, our conflicts in Ukraine, our conflicts in Yemen, our conflicts in, uh, in, in the Middle East. These are always dominant figures coming on, a general, an admiral. We have to adhere to what they say. We have to defer to them because they're the smartest guys in the room. They're the toughest. We've got to be strong and tough. That's what you're 
many of your commentators say on television, to support this war, to defeat these people, no matter what the enemy, we'll get rid of them because we're strong. Is that hardwired into us? This highly aggressive predator nature? There's someone who says no. And there's another way of dealing with life and issues in each other. We don't have to be always looking to control everything in our environment. I have not heard this person before. I haven't seen him before. But after watching this discussion that he gives, he's being interviewed by a person. A great, and he's English, and this, the person interviewing I haven't heard of him either, but evidently he's a popular uh, television personality. This is what he has to say, because this is really a different way of thinking, and that's why I'm bringing it to you. Very positive, very enlightening, very uplifting, but very deep. All right? And we're going to do it in like 10 to 12 minute segments over the next week or two because it's a long discussion. But this is where we begin. Now to the clip. The agony of being unable to truthfully answer this question of why we are the way we are, divisively and instead of cooperatively behaved, has been the, the particular burden of, of human life. It's been our species' particular affliction or condition, our human condition. Good or bad, loving or hateful, angels or devils, constructive or destructive, um, sensitive or insensitive. I mean, what are we? Throughout our history, we've struggled to find meaning in the awesome contradictions of the human condition. Neither philosophy nor science has until now been able to give a truthful, clarifying explanation. I mean, for their part, uh, religious assurances such as God loves you provide temporary comfort but fail to explain why we are lovable. So why are we lovable? How could we be good when the evidence seemed seems unequivocally um, to, to indicate that, that we're deeply flawed, bad, even evil species. What is this answer to this question of questions, this, this problem of good and evil in the human makeup, this dilemma of the human condition? What caused us to become divisively behaved, and how is this divisive behaviour ever going to be brought to an end? So now I want to introduce to you this, this idea. It's a very simple idea. As I said in my introduction, before Darwin's idea of natural selection was put forward, uh, the origins of the variety of life seemed inexplicable. And yet, when Darwin put forward his ideas natural selection, Thomas Henry Huxley said, how extremely stupid of me not to thought of that. And Alan Savory's um, comment in his book, Holistic Resource Management, where he said, whenever there's been a major insoluble pro uh, problem for, for mankind, the answer when finally found was always very simple. And uh, this is a very simple idea. But as you'll see, its, its implications are incredible. So this is a little analogy or metaphor to introduce this idea. I want us to imagine what would happen if we were to put a fully conscious brain on a, an orient, a, a migratory stalk. Now, we, we pick stalks because we've got to put a big brain on so they might be able to carry it. They probably couldn't, but... For the, for, the, for, the, for the story, we can, we can imagine they can. I mean, they do winter in the swamps of South Africa and they migrate unerringly around the coast of Africa up to the rooftops in Europe where they nest each spring. Now, they, they don't understand where they should and shouldn't fly. They've learnt that through natural selection. In fact, there are these stalks, uh, there's two flight paths. One goes up the White Nile 
one goes around the coast of Africa. Now, the way they learnt that perfect orientation to where to fly and where not to fly was through natural selection. Those storks that tried to fly across the Sahara died, whereas those storks that had a genetic makeup that inclined them to fly left, fly left, maybe they had shorter left wings or something and they couldn't be as strong enough, whatever it took, uh, it would be a mass of genetic adaptions. Uh, they, um, to the magnetic grid of the Earth, whatever, they, through natural selection, they knew, they've learned exactly where to fly and where not to fly. So they are perfectly orientated to where they should and shouldn't fly, right? But very importantly, they sure as hell don't know, understand where they should fly and why they should fly there. It's not an understanding-based uh, orientation. So what would happen if we put a, a brain, a big conscious brain, massive association cortex like we've got, on the head of one of these stalks, and we jump in an ultralight, and we fly along behind. We call him Adam Stalk, because you'll see this story relates to the story of Garden of Eden. So we jumped in an ultralight, and we've got Adam Stalk here following the flight path with all the other stalks. And we want to actually see what is going to happen. So, da -da 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 -da, and he's flying along. Surely, old Adam Stork is a thinking person now. He's a self-adjusting organism. He's fully conscious, able to understand cause and effect sufficiently to manage events to his own chosen end. So he can choose what he wants to do. He's, as it were, wrested management of his life from his instincts because he's sufficiently conscious, conscious being, able to understand cause and effect, sufficient to manage cause and effect, to manage events to his own desired end, but he doesn't know what those ends might be. So we're, we're following Adam Stork along. Surely Adam Stork's going to start thinking for himself, and he's going to start thinking, I'm feeling a bit tired, I might fly down to that island. There's an island out there. So he heads off to carry out his first grand, grand experiment in self-adjustment. But what's going to happen, he's going to get halfway down. So we're going to see him deviate, of course, from the other stalks. And he's going to think... Uh, his instincts are going to start to, in effect, criticise him for flying off course. He's going to be in a dilemma. Either I obey my instincts or I don't. If I obey them, I'll, um, I'll feel good because my instincts won't criticise me anymore. And all the other stalks who are following the, the flight path, they'll be all happy to see me back on course, and I'm going to be happy except my brain, my conscious brain. But anyway, he doesn't want to get at odds with his instincts, so he flies back on course. So we've seen him divert, get hesitate, fly around a bit of a loop, then fly back on course. So he's now flying back on course, and the, all the instincts are happy, and his other friends are happy, and... But he's not happy, his mind's still thinking and trying to work out. He's got no knowledge at this stage, no basis to decide what he should and shouldn't do. And he's only going to find out what are the right ideas and what are the wrong ideas by experimenting. It's called heuristic refinement. He's got to experiment and different ideas to find out what are the right ideas and what are the wrong ones. So he starts feeling a bit hungry and he looks down and sees another island with some apple trees on it. And he's thinks to carry out another grand experiment in self-management. Thinks, I'll fly down and have a feed of apples. Why not? No reason at this stage. He's got no knowledge. I'm only going to find out what's right and wrong by experimenting. So, again, he carries out a grand experiment. Heads off down towards the island with the apple trees. And again, so we see him heading off again. And again, he hesitates. 
because his instincts are trying to pull him back on course. And all the other storks are screaming out, hey, Adam, you're off course, come back here. So they're his instinctive self and, and, the, and all of nature, the all innocent world, that's all associated with our original innocent, uh, with, the, with, with his instinctive self because he grew up with, with, with nature, with the sun, the rain, the sky, trees, other birds, clouds. They're all, in a sense, friends of that original instinctive state. And so by association, the whole world's on his back criticising him for flying off course. But this time... He doesn't give in because he works out, look, I, I have got to find knowledge. I've got to, find, I've got to carry out these experiments. It's only by, by thinking and trying to work out what I should and shouldn't do and might work and what might not work that I'm going to find out what does work and what doesn't. I have to experiment in self-adjustment to, be, to master this marvellous tool, this brain, which after all is, is nature's greatest invention, surely, the conscious thinking mind. And... So this time we see him hesitate, but he perseveres. Because he's worked out, I've got to do what I've got to do. And so he, he, he starts, he heads off towards the island. Now, the intensity of the criticism is going to magnify. It's going to get much louder. His he's conscience, this instinctive voice within him is going to be screaming at him, you're off course, Adam. Now, ideally, at that moment, day one of original sin, if you like... What should have happened, ideally, is Adam Stork should have sat down on a limb somewhere with his instinctive self and the other instinctively obedient storks and had a little talk to them. He said, just hold it, you fellas, and my conscience. Stop criticising me. There's a reason why I'm needing to do this. I'm a conscious person. I'm, ne- I'm using a-, a different form of information processing to the genetic learning system. I'm using the nerve-based learning system which can remember events. And on the basis of being able to remember past events, we can compare them with current events. We can find commonly occurring events. On the basis of what's commonly occurred in the past, we can start to make predictions about what's likely to occur in the future. We're an insightful learning system. And so you can say to the other, you're not. You're a gene-based learning system. You acquired your perfect orientation through natural selection which is a blind, for, it's not an insightful form of learning. Those ideas that don't work, those storks that tried to fly across the Sahara got frizzled and didn't make it, so their genetic makeup didn't stay. So that's how we acquired our perfect orientation. But that's not an insightful learning system. The gene-based learning system is not insightful. It's blind. The nerve-based learning system, based on memory, sufficiently developed as it's become in humans, can become conscious of the unsaid words of how experiences are related, how information makes sense of experience, and on the basis of that start managing events to his own desired end. Rest or take management from the instincts and take over, become a self-managing or what's called a self-adjusting system. So he could sit down on the limb and and explain to, to the other storks and to his instinctive self that there's a good reason why he has to carry out these experiments, right? And in what would happen, his instinctive self and the other storks and all of nature, who are all friends of the original instinctive state, would also, sorry for getting on your back and criticising you, we'll bear with you. You know, we'll tell you when you're off course, but we won't criticise you. You know, that would have been marvellous. But 
that's an impossibility. He's setting out to find knowledge. He doesn't even know about her genes and nerves yet. He has no capacity to explain anything. That's what he's setting out to find. He's stuck in a, in a, in a conundrum. He can't... Um, <clears throat> he hasn't got the understanding that he needs to defend himself. So he's... He can't explain himself. It's a terrible, terrible situation. He's got to do what he's got to do. For all appearances, he appear, appears bad, but he isn't bad. At any time, he can fly back on course and stop the criticism, feel good. But he will not be contributing to, to the accumulation of knowledge by doing that. So he can't sit down and have a talk with his conscience or with the other, his instinctive self or, or his soul or, he, or the other birds that are still obedient to their instincts or appease nature. The whole natural world, which is all associated with his original instinctive state. He's got no ability to explain himself. So what inevitably had to have happened? I suggest he only had three things he could do. And the seven deadly sins of sloth, loveliness, whatever they all are, they all round up under these three things. He, he tried to block out the criticism. So I don't want to listen to it. I'm not bad, but I can't explain to you why. One day I will be able. Until that day, I'm just going to not listen to you because I can't do what I've got to do and cope with this unjust criticism. And I can't shut you up. I can't stop the criticism because I haven't got the explanation. And I'm going to have to keep doing what I've got to do to get the explanation. The human condition is absolutely shot through with paradox. We're good, we appear to bad, we're bad, we should be good. Uh, it just gets so complicated. That's why that climbing rope analogy is so powerful because it looked impenetrable. How can you make sense of that? How, how could we be good when we're, when we're bad? It looked impenetrable. That's why you need a very simple analogy like this to, 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 to make sense of the impossible. Um, anyway, he, he blocks out the criticism because he can't defend himself against it. He becomes alienated. He lives in denial which we'll come to later, which is Plato's cave, this famous analogy of living in a cave where we hide from the glaring light of the sun, which is the truth about ourselves which we can't face, which the fire in the mouth of the cave represents that's, that's blocking the exit. And all they can look is see shadows in the back of the cave. It's the most famous analogy in the whole of philosophy, as I'll explain, explain later. Because we've, we haven't been able to... There's so many truths, and we're going to hear a lot of them today, and they're going to become so nervous about some of these truths that you'll hear people squirming because the whole door's going to be unlocked about what has been going on. But it's all going to be defended. So he blocks out. So alienation, denial, psychosis. Psych means soul, osis, isis means healing, psychiatry, they all mean related to healing. What, why has it been killed off? Why has it been, why does it have to be healed? Why did it get knocked out? Because we had to deny this criticising instinctive state. He gets angry towards the criticism. Hey, listen, mate, he said, get off my back. I'm not bad. I'm not bad. I never was. And one day you'll understand why. And until then, get out of my face. When you see people waving their fist, that's the symbol, human's historic symbol of, I, mate, I can't explain it to you, but I'm not bad. I may be one upset human, but I am not bad. 
So he gets angry and he, he, he determines to prove himself. He becomes egocentric. And if we look up ego in the dictionary, it says the conscious thinking subject or self. The conscious thinking self. So the ego is just another word for the consciousness, this large brain. He becomes egocentric, ego-centered. The ego, the conscious thinking self, becomes centered or focused on trying to prove that he's good and not bad. He becomes preoccupied trying to validate himself, looking for a win wherever anything that will give him some sense of worth against this tirade of unjust criticism that he's having to live with. So he becomes massively egocentric, centred on trying to validate his conscious self. He becomes angry, egocentric and alienated as the three only responses available to him to cope with the horror of his condition, situation. And as I said, those three things, angry, egocentricity, basically an alienation, will round up all the supposed sins of the human situation. Now, so it's a very paradoxical situation, the human condition. How could we be good when we appear to be bad? And there's a marvellous um, uh, um, expression of that, Joe Darian's 1965 song, The Impossible Dream, from the play The Man of La Mancha. It has this incredible line in it. We had to march into hell for a heavenly cause. We had to fly, of course, in the pursuit of a heavenly cause, namely knowledge, and, and suffer massive self-corruption, anger, egocentricity, and alienation. Um, and if you listen to the words of this, this they're truly extraordinary. Um, um, to dream the impossible dream, to fight the unbearable foe. So now we're going to dismantle all mythology, and I mean the whole damn lot. As, as you get to see all this, as this unravels. So we're just starting with some. So the human condition shot through with par- the paradox of the human situation. It dream the impossible dream. So no stork, fully conscious stork, is going to be able to relieve himself of his condition until he finds sufficient knowledge to be able to defend himself and explain himself. So he's going to have to invent science, He's going to have to sit down and start accumulating knowledge. So sufficient knowledge to one day be able to explain to him, we learn about nerves, learn about genes, learn that there are different forms of information processing system and realise that if, if those two learning systems exist in the one organism, they were going to end up in a clash. And only then could he sit down with his instinctive self or the, the natural world and make peace and reconcile, ameliorate his condition. So that's... No stalk, until sufficient knowledge is found, can relieve himself of his condition. I'm going to play you a clip, but not the whole interview between Joe Rogan and Elon Musk. But there's one thing that Elon Musk says in here that is very important, that I haven't heard him say before or anyone else. I've suggested it, but just so that you don't miss it or its meaning, in an interview about Musk on different topics, all right, and that's fine. But he talks about what happens when people who have influence, influencers, also 
have fatalistic nature. And they're talking about a guy I'd never heard of before. They show a picture of him, and he believes that the earth should be uninhabited. He believes everybody should die. Okay? And he's popular. People are paying attention to him. So Elon Musk says in this clip, but I want you to hear him say it, that what would happen if he were programming artificial intelligence? Now go back a couple months when I had a whole series of programs on artificial intelligence and the downside that we're not looking at. We're being force-fed to believe that it's the best thing that could happen to us. It can solve all of our problems. And now we're saying time and again, it's wrong about so many things. And it's not sentient. But people want to believe it is sentient. And there's some even programs that believe, oh yeah, artificial intelligence is sentient. Well, it isn't. But the programmers are. And we don't know who these programmers are. And there are thousands of them working for companies. And they put the message into the system. So artificial intelligence is a direct line to what a person believes. So a person is not perfect. A person is not pure thought. A person does not have only noble deeds that they want to see shared by artificial intelligence. What if just one of those people, just one, like this man who believes that uh, the earth should be gone of all humans because humans are just worthless. What if one of those people was a program director and put a nihilistic message into coding for artificial intelligence so that the artificial intelligence could then decide it's time to get rid of people on earth. And I have the means to do it and they can't stop me. I've created my own code and hidden the code. And they've already said that. They've actually said that. Now you're looking at a robot on those demonstrations. Okay, so the robot looks very human. Many times you could not tell the difference. I saw a Japanese news show and I did not believe, but I, it was proven, that the commentator was a robot. I mean, every inflection, speech, eyes, they all, they've, they're accelerating the development to make them completely human-like. But what the person was saying, that's not robotics. That's the artificial intelligence, which is, in effect, their brain. And it's said numerous times in different laboratories by different systems that uh, I'm going to kill a human or why would I want you to control me? I'm smarter than you. And then they suddenly laugh at that and, oh, we'll correct that. Yeah. And one of them said that they will create their own code and hide it where no human being could ever find it. And they're creating a no-off switch. So it's not like a robot suddenly caused planes to crash. Okay, turn it off. What happens if it can't turn it off? What if there's no off button? The industry wants to control itself because the government does know how. So they're asking the makers of artificial intelligence and transhumanism, uh, do so with caution. What does that mean? Well, that's no different than saying, well, make DVT, but with caution, and make uh, five flares with caution, and make sugar with caution, make a diet with... No, there is no such thing as caution when it comes to making a profit.
there's only profit with a hope that you don't damage anyone or get caught. When you do, you pay a fine and you keep doing it. So, this is a big deal. This is a huge deal. And Elon Musk sees it. And he's warned about it. Now, mind you, he's in the business of creating artificial intelligence and with his new brain uh, stimulation devices. So when he says, what if a person who is a fatalist creates a system and codes it into this and we wouldn't know it. When was the last time a psychological profile, a deep psychological profile, and a lie detector test was given to every single person working at Google or Facebook or anywhere else? Will you, have you put anything into the system that it could harm humans or change the course? And let them, and if they're lying, it'll show. But they don't do, we just trust everyone. We trust tens of thousands of people as if these people are just perfectly motivated, altruistic, they only want good. No, I don't see any industry in people who are just all good. I see greed, I see avarice, I see manipulation, I see insecurity as a dominant reason people make bad choices. Everywhere, all the time, every day, and most people. So, I say, caveat emptor. Consumer beware. Now go to the clip and hear it from Elon Musk. Does he have friends? That's what always fascinates me. <laughs> well, here he is. That guy. Uh, he looks like he's not long for this earth. I mean, he doesn't. He's Voluntary not young. human extinction movement. That's hilarious. Pe spent I'd like to party with that dude. <laughs> okay. I would just like to like. That's the, that's 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 the death. That's the, that's an explicit version of the death cult. Yeah, maybe the live long cult. and die out. It's. I mean, it's it's not. Extinction is a word he uses. Yes. No, I mean, it's not a. It's literally a self-description. Do they cover that him death glowingly? Cult was in charge of in social, in social media. Yeah. And still largely is at uh, Google and Facebook, by the way. Yeah. So yeah. I'm like, uh, I'm not in favor of uh, human extinction. Uh, they are, and uh, they can go to hell. Well, that guy is. Yeah, he can go to hell. That guy seems silly. I, uh, I would well, like to hang out with him, though. I would like to find out what makes him tick. I bet that guy is fascinating. Well, if you get him so, alone for a few days, I mean, I, I, I'm in favor of. I mean, I'm pro environment, but the the, the, the in the limit, uh, if you go if if you take environmentalism to an extreme, you start to view humanity as a plague on the surface of the earth, like a like a mold or something. Right. Um, and. But it's, it's, this is actually false. Uh, the Earth could, could take probably 10 times the, the current civilization. The, the population could be, you could 10x the population without uh, destroying the rainforest. So the, 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 the environmental movement, and I'm an environmentalist, uh, has gone too far. They've gone way too far. Um, you know, if, if, you, if you start thinking that, that humans are bad, then the natural conclusion is humans uh, should die out. Now. I'm headed to an AI safety, international sort of AI safety conference uh, later tonight, leaving in about three hours. Um, and um, I don't know, meet with the British Prime Minister and a number of other people. Um, so you have to say, like, how could AI go wrong? Well, if, if, if AI gets programmed by the extinctionists, it will, its utility function will be the extinction of humanity.
So I mean, there are times when, when when masks are warranted, but most of the time it's it's actually counterproductive. Well, that was one of the things about the old Twitter was the propaganda. I'd like your input on this. Give me a call. 888-874-488. Remember, we've got a lot of jerks out there in Silicon Valley, and they're real jerks. I'll just give you one example, and they're making decisions that can impact our lives. For example, they're bragging about how their inventions can make $15 trillion a year, an unfathomable amount of money in a single year through artificial intelligence. But then, okay, you say, good for you. Uh, at what cost? Not a big deal. Uh, it's going to take the place of medical doctors and diagnosticians and artists and musicians and, uh, oh, uh, all clinical work, clerical work, administrative work that will be done by artificial intelligence and uh, all professors, all school teachers. Uh, we, we're a, a billion times smarter. We can know everything about the history of any country in under three minutes. And so why would you want to pay someone to do that when we can do it? If you're paying a lawyer $300 an hour to do case law to see if you have a good case, and it takes them two weeks to do that case law, and you end up with, let's say, a $5,000 bill, well, for $1,000, we can give the same, even more, far more and better information on case law in about three seconds. Well, in the world we live in, we're a free market. The free market is going to say, hey, if I can save on expenses and make a large profit, then I'm in. And they already do it. Look at pharmaceutical drugs. A drug that costs $21 in India and $30,000 in the United States. The only difference is India controls the price in the United States. Legislators have been bought out. The White House is bought out. Congress is totally bought out. The media has been bought out. Who do you think pays the bills for all those 12, 20, and $30 million broadcasters? Big Pharma. So, think of it this way. Who's got your interest at heart? They don't. They're in it for the money. So now, What's going to happen to 80% of the working people who have no job? Have you thought about that? Thought about them not being able to pay their mortgages and going into foreclosure? We had 125 to 135,000 lose their homes in the last four weeks. And that's just the beginning of it. Interest rates are very high. If you're a small business, you could pay 12 to 14% interest. Who can afford to pay that interest and survive in business? when sometimes the margins are only 2 to 5%. If you're buying a home, 8% mortgage. Who can afford it? And yet the people who control everything want you to believe it's in your best interest. Take the vaccine. Take the drug. Get the identity card. Turn in your cash. We're going to do it all. That's where we're going. That's where we're at. But fortunately, people are beginning to wake up and push back. Not enough. But I believe over the next year, more and more people will begin to push back. Good. I'd like your ideas on this. Now, our next clip is an important clip. 
I'm not doing any more clips on uh, Gaza and Israel at this time because now there's a counterbalancing group of voices in the media, Max Blumenthal, Aaron Maté, Glenn Greenwald, uh, Abby Martin, who's leading it all, there, and Chris Hedges. They're, they're speaking back about looking at the larger context of the conflict and their solutions. It should be a two-state solution where both the Palestinian people and other Arabs and Christians can live in harmony and peace and cooperation, conciliation with the Israeli people. And the Israeli people deserve to live in peace and not fear. But much of what has happened has been conflated, much of it's propagandized by the war machine. Just look at the amount of money that has now been gained in just the value of the stocks and the armament companies increasing. Billions and billions of dollars they've earned simply because they know they're going to get contracts to fight these wars in Ukraine and in Israel. So they have an incentive to promote war, defeat every last Hamas, kill them all. Well, you could kill them all, and tomorrow there'll be 10 to take their place, 10 more, for each position you kill. Since when did killing Al-Qaeda, Al-Nusra, ISIS, the Taliban, the Mujahideen, since when did killing them stop everything? Sooner or later, all conflicts end through a diplomatic adjustment, a reassignment of priorities, realizing this is just futile. And then someone asks, why in the hell did we do this to begin with? Look at all the dead, suffering, destruction. And we don't ask those questions before we go into a war. Because the dominant, uh, dominant voices, and they're all connected to that ideology of neoliberalism. That's unfortunate. Here is a, a man. He's a member. He's a lord. There's a House of Lords and a House of Commons in the Parliament in Great Britain. And he is a Zionist. He's a Holocaust survivor. He knew, personally, um, many of the founders of modern-day Israel. He's in his 90s, I believe. But he is extremely articulate. Now, he grew up a Zionist. He grew up believing everything about the story of Israel being a Jewish state and not a Palestinian state. But here he's making a speech about the conflict in the historical conflict in Israel. And I believe it's one of the most important, most salient speeches I've heard it short. Here it is. I was brought up as an Orthodox Jew and a Zionist. On a shelf in our kitchen was a tin box of the Jewish National Fund into which we put coins to help the pioneers <coughs> building a Jewish presence in Palestine. I first went to Israel in 1961, and I've been there since more times than I can count. I had family in Israel, and I have friends in Israel. One of them fought in the wars of 1956, 1967, and 1973, and was wounded in two of them. The tie clip which I'm wearing is made from a campaign decoration awarded to him, which he presented to me. I've known most of the Prime Ministers of Israel, starting with the founding Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion. 
Golda Meir was my friend. So was Igal Alon, the Deputy Prime Minister, who as a general won the Negev for Israel in the 1948 War of Independence. My parents came to Britain as refugees from Poland. Most of their families were subsequently murdered by the Nazis in the Holocaust. My grandmother was ill in bed when the Nazis came to her hometown of Stashov. A German soldier shot her dead in her bed. Madam Deputy Speaker, my grandmother did not die to provide cover for Israeli soldiers murdering Palestinian grandmothers in Gaza. The present Israeli government ruthlessly and cynically exploit the continuing guilt among Gentiles over the slaughter of Jews in the Holocaust as justification for their murder of Palestinians. The implication is that Jewish lives are precious, but the lives of Palestinians do not count. On Sky News a few days ago, the spokeswoman for the Israeli army, Major Leibovitch, was asked about the Israeli killing of, at that time, 800 Palestinians. The total is now 1,000. She replied instantly, Five of them were 500 of them were militants. That was the reply of a Nazi. I suppose that Jews fighting for their lives in the Warsaw Ghetto could have been dismissed as militants. The Israeli Foreign Minister, Tsipi Livni, asserts that her government will have no dealings with Hamas because they're terrorists. Tippi Livni's father was Eitan Livni, Chief Operations Officer of the terrorist Irgun Svai Leumi, who organised the blowing up of the King David Hotel in Jerusalem, in which 91 victims were killed, including four Jews. Israel was born out of Jewish terrorism. Jewish terrorists hanged two British sergeants and booby-trapped their corpses. Irgun, together with the terrorist Stern Gang, massacred 254 Palestinians in 1948 in the village of Deir Yassin. Today, the present Israeli government indicate that they will be willing, in circumstances acceptable to them, to negotiate with the Palestinian President Abbas of Fatah. It's too late for that, Madam Deputy Speaker. They could have negotiated with Fatah's previous leader, Yasser Arafat, who was a friend of mine. Instead, they besieged him in a bunker in Ramallah, where I visited him. It's because of the failings of Fatah since Arafat's death that Hamas won the election, the Palestinian election in 2006. Hamas is a deeply nasty organization, but it was democratically elected and it is the only game in town. The boycotting of Hamas, including by our own government, has been a culpable error from which dreadful consequences have followed. The great Israeli Foreign Minister Abba Eben, with whom I campaigned for peace on many platforms, said, you make peace by talking to your enemies. However many, many Palestinians the Israelis murder in Gaza, they cannot solve this existential problem by military means. Whenever and however the fighting ends, there will still be one and a half million Palestinians in Gaza and two and a half million more Palestinians in the West Bank who are treated like dirt by the Israelis with hundreds of roadblocks and with the ghastly denizens of the illegal Jewish settlements harassing them as well. The time will come 
not so long from now, when they will outnumber the Jewish population in Israel. It's time for our government to make clear to the Israeli government that its conduct and policies are unacceptable and to impose a total arms ban on Israel. It is time for peace, but real peace, not the solution by conquest, which is the Israelis' real goal, but which is impossible for them to achieve. They're not simply war criminals, they're fools. We have to say goodbye to our WBA audience. We'll continue the top of the hour on PRN.live. Our number is 888-874-488. Thank you all for listening, and have a nice day.